Hi, my name's Claire Murray, and I'm the founder and managing partner of specialist employment and partnership law firm CM Murray in London. And I'm also the host of our law firm founder podcast series, where we talk to founders from around the world uh, who have set up their own law firms, developed and grown them. The idea is through these um, discussions to hopefully inspire some new founders, uh, including hopefully more women and uh, diverse firm owners, to share some practical tips on setting up and growing a law firm and some war stories of some of the highs and lows setting up a law firm and driving its long-term growth and success and perhaps for some of us law firm founders just a little bit of therapy along the way certainly I found them very uh, helpful in my own thinking about the long-term strategy of our own firm so I am utterly delighted and privileged to have with us today uh, Michael Kim Michael is the co-founder and partner at Cobray and Kim which is a very well-known 200 plus lawyer firm across four continents specializing in disputes and investigations and known uh, for its incredibly robust approach to these particular issues. Michael himself uh, co-founded the firm uh, just over 18, nearly 19 years ago with Steve Cobray and uh, Michael himself is described by Chambers as an extraordinary attorney with great trial and legal skills who knows how to give clients what they want. I mean, what what more can you ask of a lawyer? But let me ask you this, what more can you ask of a law firm founder? Is is that enough to be a really successful law firm founder, Michael? And and what do you think are the the key attributes? Yeah, so I think um, one of the most important issues, I think, in my mind, about being a law firm founder is um, having clarity about whether you're trying to establish and and enhance a business, i.e. a law firm that would have value independent of the people in it. In other words, that it's a type of business, let's say like Netflix or McDonald's, that no matter who's making the hamburgers or who's working there has a value proposition that is differentiated and can continue uh, independent of the people versus are you trying to uh, establish a a company that has many different practice areas that are centered around specific people and their clientele or their goodwill in the marketplace. I think they're fundamentally different and incompatible goals. So whether a law firm uh, founder is succeeding or not, I think depends on what one's goal is. Uh, We're clear Steve Cobra and I, from the beginning, that we were trying to do the former, not the latter. So for us, trying to de-emphasize the personal importance of our uh, personal legal work uh, over time and trying to create and grow, not in terms of size, but in terms of differentiation. We can get to that later, because I think growth in size is definitely, it's generally a bad thing when it comes to law firms, in my view. Uh, for either goal. But I think what we're really trying to do is to have a firm that is independent of the two of us. And uh, and we're, I'd say we're partially successful, but we're moving in the right direction. So that, that would be my self-assessment. But I think for founders, in answer to your question, I think it depends on which goal you're trying to accomplish and confusion or lack of even thought about the difference between those two goals and what one is trying to do, 
I think is the leading cause of difficulty among law firm founders from what I've observed. I think that's so interesting. And it also highlights um, a, a really common problem with law firm founders is how do you leave? You know, how, how do you, what is your own exit strategy? Frankly, if everything, you know, whether, you know, you get a richer stage in your career or you're just older and you, you want to retire, sort of what is your strategy for handing over that business? And if it's still so tied to you and your individual practice and brand, it, um, that could be really challenging. So you, was that a strategy that you clearly identified you and Steve right from the start? I mean, do you literally go into this initiative, this project, knowing that you wanted to create whatever it was? The um, I mean, Netflix wasn't around there, but but this kind of very separate, identifiable, substantive brand. Uh, yes, I mean, I think probably uh, we knew from the beginning that's what we we're trying to do, but we you know, had had no prior business experience and very little law practice experience, other than serving as prosecutors at the U.S. Department of Justice. So. Uh, we made a lot of mistakes, probably starting with naming the firm after ourselves. Now, at the time, New York law required law practices to be named after the founders. You had no choice. You couldn't have like a trade name, unlike some other countries, including the UK. But, uh, but in retrospect, that was probably one of the biggest obstacles <laughs> to try to accomplish what we wanted to accomplish. But yes, we knew from the beginning that's what we were trying to do. And I think uh, the scenario you paint about a very common problem, you know, law firm founder eventually has trouble leaving um, and is racked with guilt slash stress over a combination of people who kind of came to work for me. How will they survive and prosper after I'm gone? Slash, is there anything of value I can get an income stream from after I'm gone? You know, uh, slash, uh, am I going to have financial problems if I leave and the firm goes under? And am I going to owe money and so forth? And I think this comes from fundamentally uh, doing one thing at, for most of most people's career and then suddenly trying to switch to something else belatedly. What I mean by that is most law firms I, I see at the end, they either go out of business when the, when the key founders or rainmakers leave, or they go out of business uh, in a secret way by merging into another firm, mm -hmm. uh, meaning they did really go out of business and their people got a job somewhere else. It was just a way to disguise, uh, make, make it not so explicit that they went out of business. Very few end up having something to pass on to another generation of partners, but that usually ends up also in a very unstable situation. It's not really clear why that would should be the model, i.e. having other rainmakers to pass on from one rainmaker kind of ends up deferring the problem, I would say, rather than solving it to base uh, a law firm based on individual practices. So um, I think that's uh, what the problem you identify is a very, very important one. And I think it comes from most people just trying to aggrandize their own practices or the practices of rainmakers until one day they wake up and they don't feel like working so hard anymore or they don't, they want to go to something else. And then suddenly they're trying to make it into an institution. It'd be kind of like if you raised a child to be completely dependent on you throughout their entire life and then one day you're like, okay, now you're 20 years old. Now you have to leave the house and live on, live on your own. Uh, and you just did that all of a sudden really would be very difficult for most people to have that type of uh, parenting experience that has to be done gradually along the way. It, it, it is difficult. I mean, I, I know even within our own practice, which obviously it kind of, it bears my name. Although I've spent a lot of time over the last five years compared to the first 10, 
I guess, um, really separating me personally from the brand so that lots of people come to the work, to the firm, CM Murray, without even knowing that I exist. Mm. And that seems to me progress. It's not, I'm obviously nowhere near uh, uh, where you guys have got to. But, I mean, it's just extraordinarily visionary of you and Steve kind of nearly 20 years ago when, you know, the market, legal market is still pretty vanilla. You know, people weren't considering or able to do things like IPOs. There were fewer sort of international mergers, although they were happening. Um, so, I mean, it was unbelievably visionary of you both. As you say, um, you'd had some private practice experience for a few years, and and but you'd basically come out of, I think, prosecutor roles, as you say. Um, I mean, did you have any, did you, did you have business school experience? I mean, what, what was it that gave you this, this kind of vision that this is, you know, you, you create this kind of completely separate, scalable, I mean, that's pretty important, scalable, but also at an incredibly specialist, focused and high value level. I mean, what, what gave you the vision and, and how did you see that being built out? Yeah, I think that um, in terms of the ideas, I would disagree that it's visionary because we basically copied ideas that are commonly found in first year uh, MBA business school textbooks, right. uh, i.e. positioning products that are um, not commonly available in the marketplace due to market dysfunction and that have high barriers to entry. Uh, so everything we do in, in the firm is basically focused on international fraud and misconduct cases, every aspect of them representing corporate victims, creditors, uh, functioning as monitors for governments, sometimes representing the alleged perpetrators. We basically looked at what services are not being offered efficiently and why, uh, and are there obstacles to doing so? And we try to focus on that in, in the international fraud and misconduct space. So that is a very, very basic business school concept of if you're going to enter a market. But not, but not within the legal sector. I think it's visionary right. within the legal sector. And maybe the fact that you had you were unburdened by private practice, yeah. by extensive private practice, was an amazing thing because you could look at just the wider market and take lessons, pretty yeah, basic I, lessons from what you're saying. I think it helped that we really had no clientele or practices of our own. So I think that uh, if somebody already has a client following, they would have to give that up and destroy it in order to create a business. And so uh, since those are the people who mostly found firms, it's like a perpetuating system where people who are in a position to found firms uh, already have something that's really a personal practice. And it's easier for them to grow that and glob on other practices and, con and convince themselves that they're creating a firm when in fact they're not. So we had nothing, meaning we had little to no money and no practices. Uh, nobody really knew who we were and we certainly didn't have any clients. And that really gave us the freedom uh, to do what, what I, like I said, is commonly taught in textbooks. It just looks visionary because not many people have done it, but it's really quite basic ideas, I'd say. So just tell us, I know it's, it's, it's an extended, it's kind of nearly two decades, but so what was that journey like from kind of you and Steve, kind of day one, the two of you, to uh, building this, you know, 200 plus lawyer firm kind of very focused clearly very focused across four continents I mean, th that is a very substantial undertaking so just would you maybe just give us some of the edited highlights of yeah. as to what that journey looked like so we did not grow it by merging with other firms or buying people's practices in fact one of our key 
conditions for people who lateral into the firm at a senior level, say as a partner, is to not call their old clients for business, but just to execute our model. So uh, I'd say the probably the common answer to your question for people who grew firms by buying books of business or bringing in rainmakers would be acquiring, finding the right candidates with, with the right books of business and all that kind of stuff. So for us, we haven't done that. I'd say um, the easiest part, ironically, I thought this was going to be the hardest part. The easiest part has been coming up with ideas for services that the market needs and selling them and getting business. So whether we do it personally or other people in our firm do it or non-lawyers in our firm kind of send out messaging through social media and get great cases for the firm, that has been ironically the easiest part. The hardest part have been finding the right talent who are intellectually adaptable to do new things and will leave the rest of the legal industry behind in terms of their thought process, i.e. some people who want to be collaborative, who want to act in the best interest of the firm and the client, as opposed to trying to build up their own personal practice and making it all about them. That is a, um, I'd say the biggest obstacle to business success in, for law firms is that they're owned by lawyers and most lawyers do not understand that their ego and their view of themselves as knowing a lot of things and being very intelligent is the single biggest obstacle to business success for an institution. I think that causes conservative and kind of stagnated behavior that ends up being a major obstacle. So that's been the hardest part is finding the right people who will be flexible and adopt new ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. And in terms of when you're looking at people, lawyers to join you, are you looking at them as lawyers is that the skill set or are you looking at them as innovators as salesmen as as networkers i mean what is the kind of the classic covering kim kind of uh at higher so today the institution has had to evolve over time but today I'd say the most valued skill is pure talent intellectual talent at um, solving client problems so that is i would say a quality that the legal industry does not test for either in the educational system or in promoting people. So it's been very, very hard to identify. So have, being a quote unquote good lawyer, having an area of specialty, being careful in your thinking and writing, I, I would say this is just more like if you're going to be a lifeguard, you should know how to swim. So if you're not able to perform at that level, you should not be roaming around trying to charge clients several hundred to a thousand dollars an hour. Uh, you should just stop doing what you're doing. But um, so that like skill as a lawyer, I would say high level skill as a lawyer is a prerequisite. It's mm. very hard to really test for, but that's what we know. And then what, what, then what, what on top of that do you, do you I look would say a, uh, a humility about wanting to learn new things is probably the single most important characteristic for us. That is very rare among lawyers. I would say most lawyers, once they've been practicing 10 to 15 years uh, deep down don't want to study anymore and they want to live off of what they knew and want to be thought of as important and, and kind of respected. And they want to get lazier and lazier over time. They get worse over time, not better, most people. But if you're building this big scalable model within a, 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 a kind of a, a big corporate brand, are you essentially looking for the most brilliant and best lawyers in what you do in terms of being a lawyer or are you actually looking for business people, uh, you know, people with business and sales and related 
talent. Yeah, increasingly, um, sales has, and in terms of sourcing new business has been done mostly as an institution at our firm. A lot of clients uh, come to us uh, with specific matters that they think we're a good fit for through lawyers at the firm they barely know. So from the client's point of view, they don't really need to work with that lawyer. They just want the firm to do it. Okay. So sales ability and that traditional like rainmaker sense is not that key. I right. think, um, and brilliance as defined by the acad legal academic system, I would say above a certain level ends up being an interference with business goals where people get like so academic and into the law that they lose sight of what the client's trying to do. So the most important quality I look for is somebody who um, wants to learn new things because we are constantly coming up with new service products that by definition do not exist in the marketplace and want to actually learn new things and try new things. And then when they're in a situation, instead of thinking, is this my client? How do I make myself important? Is thinking, what does the client need? What, is, what would be the best thing for the client? And if it's not me and it's somebody else at the firm, that's who the client's going to get. Or if the solution is not for our firm to do it, but the client to do something else with some other firm, that's really the solution they're going to get. Now, that sounds very idealistic, but I think in the long term, uh, you have to, to be successful. You have to be what you say. And I think that um, having interactions with our firm where clients and referral sources feel like we're really just trying to do the right thing and figure out the intellectually honest answer to how to solve the client's problem is key. And I would say most lawyers are very, very uh, bad at doing that. They kind of know the law they know and they want, they're looking for opportunities to bill hours doing the legal work they know. And that's the mentality I don't want. So this is very, very hard to test for. Uh, and, you know, we, we can't always get it right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, if we can just switch track slightly yeah. to, I guess at the start and also with these sort of um, these visions of expansion and scalability, including on an international scale, how again most most businesses setting up uh, uh, they'll start with some you know uh, law firm founder capital you you know you might borrow some uh, something from the bank it might be tax deductible etc. Um, whereas I once you know at some point in my journey I did a, a, a business program where they sort of said, you know, we can notionally lend you this amount of money. What are you going to do with it? And how much can you generate? And you were given like 10 minutes to go away and generate. And it was lit, it was like voodoo because it, it sort of just suddenly opened my eyes as to different funding options mm -hmm. than a very um, sort of traditional kind of partner capital loan. And I know that a number of firms are looking, for example, at IPOs in the UK because that gives an alternative funding option to, to grow and achieve your plans. And obviously, you know, other firms have looked at private equity, rightly or wrongly, you know, to support their journey. And I just wondered with, you know, with your very substantial expansion over a relatively short period of time, how, how did you fund that? If you, if you don't mind me asking. So uh, luckily we have not had to borrow other than just having the regular revolving lines of credit that every business has to smooth out cash flow. Um, and the reason is we have not really acquired uh, books of business. That's really a very, very expensive, that's probably the most expensive part of law firm expansion. Um, you know, office space, stuff like that, that doesn't really cost that much money um, compared to paying partners with books of business to lateral over. Uh, so we really haven't had to do that. So we haven't had to spend that much money expanding, relatively speaking, compared to our revenue base. Right. 
So you've kind of built this incredible pipeline, branded pipeline of work, and you brought in excellent lawyers, but not necessarily paying them for a huge practice because. Yeah, it's actually the opposite. We tell people who lateral into the firm, don't call your old clients. Don't try to bring over cases from your old firm. We just want you for your talent. We want you to do what we do. We don't want to have uh, legacy cases or for you to go and compete against your old firm or anything like that. Um, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's literally counterintuitive to every other kind of, uh, you know, team move that we've ever done or big, you know, big lateral move because literally there are the 22 page lateral partner questionnaires, which include who are your clients? What's the value for the business that you're going to bring across? How robust is it? Who can we speak to? Obviously all of which breaches confidentiality sort of, uh, uh, obligations, but um, it completely inverts all of that. Yeah. So, you know, when, when a firm does that, fundamentally what they're trying to do is to glob on practices onto already what's a collection of practices. Mm. So I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that's not what we're doing. So, you know, we, uh, we just got to be clear about what the goals are, try and execute the, the program. So what you're telling me is you kind of, the, the alternative model is effectively creating a collective, uh, you know, a kind of a managed collective that, and question is, and I suppose that does lead into, well, how do you then, in that kind of environment, ensure the long-term uh, kind of success, the long-term sustainability of those firms, especially when you see firms that have a run on the bank and they have a run on the talent, and then that can lead to their... Lead to yeah, their because if you go out practices together, fundamentally, the, what there's no real unique value proposition as far as the client goes. Uh, might be that different lawyers are talented, you know, but those lawyers are the same talented lawyers as if, as if they were at a different firm. So you haven't really created that much that's new. And uh, you're kind of betting on all those people wanting to practice together. It's a very ephemeral, very intangible glue. Uh, whereas I think if the firm itself does unique things that other firms can, either because it's conflict-free or it has an unusual geographic footprint or an unusual specialism that you can train new people into, that's something independent of who's at the firm that's valuable and differentiated. And that's what we're trying to do. It's a lot easier in some ways as a law firm founder just to hire people for books of business. And you know, if money paid to them is smaller than the money they bring into the firm, then it's a good thing. So if you think of it that way, it'd be a lot easier to, to build up a firm and expand it, i.e. make it bigger, if that's supposed to be a good thing. Uh, it's a lot more... I think I say labor intensive to try to make people act for the collective good and to uh, to come up with new ideas. I, I was going to say to and to make them collaborate to avoid internal competition as far as possible, and yeah. to integrate them. Um, I, I think that's uh, that's certainly something that I'm incredibly mindful of um, yeah. within my own sort of practice. So I was really interested that you've got, and I know this isn't so uncommon, but uh, with, with a lot of big firms, but you've got kind of your, your chief strategy officer. Yeah. See, I kind of feel like, you know, I'm the founder, the strategy is my baby. You know, it, it was my vision. And, it, you know, although now we've got this uh, wonderful next generation of partners. And so we're, you know, we're developing strategy, say even today for the next five years. But so how do you, how do you work with this, with the, your chief strategy officer, who I notice he's a um, ex McKinsey, um, he's not a lawyer. He's so. How do you and Steve sort of work with him and 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 sort of develop strategy? And how useful has that been to have someone 
expressly focused on that. Uh, yeah, immensely useful. And I'd say uh, not just Gary himself, who's incredibly talented and creative, um, but also uh, the whole concept of having talented business professionals that are not subordinate to the partners, but rather leading the business forward from an operations, finance, and strategy point of view. I think it's really key. It's only achievable because the senior lawyers at the firm uh, really regard their uh, mission to do excellent work on the cases that they've taken charge of and to take leadership roles on specific projects for the firm, as opposed to a firm structure where each one of them has a book of business and the organization's goal ends up being more about how to keep those particular human beings happy as opposed to doing right, what's right for the organization. You know, every collective, whether it's a country or a company, always has the, the difficulty of choosing between what's right in the long run versus what's going to make people happy in the short run, uh, the particular people who are there. Right? And, uh, and the law firm, I'd say, is no different. And I think having professionalized strategy think about what's right for the firm in the long run and what sacrifices we need to make and what we need to do as a collective to get there, independent of who's at the firm today. I think that objective view can really only come from professional business managers who are not themselves the producers of the service. So that's what's been immensely valuable is kind of having that objective view of what's right, what's best for the business, not what's popular today. Yeah, that's really interesting because there's so many investments decision decisions taken or rather not taken yeah. because of very short-term views about the current partner group and their priorities and also where they are in their own personal journey, etc. So it's in, I mean it kind of leads us onto things like um, sort of investment decisions, particularly in things like AI. I, I think I do think that there is a risk for you know, especially smaller uh, sort of founder firms, you know, as over the next five years, even maybe even shorter, sort of the the investment that's really required to drive innovation and including AI. I remember being told very clearly, don't even try and develop your own AI product because it would, you know, you just wait till someone else develops it and then it becomes marketed and then you license it. But I, I, I get the impression, Michael, that that may not be the Cobra and Kim way, that you guys are so out there, you're looking at very targeted products and innovation. And I just wondered, how do you decide what to invest your money and resources in, in terms of innovation and AI type projects? Yeah, so almost all our investments are really done in intangible new idea, you know, intellectual products. So the things that you see, like you know, furniture, computers, these things really mean nothing uh, in a in the context of our business. Or, um, and I think it's when we look at things like AI or new ideas, uh, the way we choose them is to kind of figure out structurally why are clients not getting what they want out of the legal profession, and then trying to see if there's an opportunity there. So I'll just give you an example. Now, if you have a complex commodity futures dispute and you end up having to attack, say, the, the um, Chicago Mercantile Exchange or one of the very large futures commission merchants, there is a market dysfunction where it's almost impossible to hire 
a qualified set of litigators in that field who know enough about the field that they can litigate these matters well, but who are willing to be um, to take positions that are unpopular with the large FCMs or the large uh, exchanges. And, and there's a whole uh, market dysfunction because the um, for someone to have a group like that, they would need to pour a lot of money into building up that group without having the transactional business from the exchanges or the large FCMs to maintain it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's an example of something we've put a lot of money into over the years. And when the, um, the wave of spoofing and market manipulation enforcement cases came, where one has to take very aggressive positions against the industry's institutional interests, uh, we're really probably the only viable, uh, well-known option for doing that. But in order to do that, you kind of have to not take work from the exchanges, not take work from the large FCMs, and get enough talented people together and pay them to basically develop this knowledge and wait for the things like this to happen. Um, so that's an example of the type of intellectual investments we make. AI, we you know, I think some of the um, uh, the internal kind of uh, knowledge uh, uh, creation and access. We've kind of created our own systems. We have a little, um, for example, uh, artificial intelligence bot that roams around all our Slack channels looking for signs that uh, we're talking about an issue that another team has encountered before. And then it tries to suggest uh, you know, different solutions other teams have come up with for that same problem, things of that sort. And we only are incentivized to do this because we, uh, we're not trying to just maximize the number of hours build. We often work on fixed fee and we're trying to do the job as efficiently as possible. Um, and, uh, and I think as long as the legal profession is owned by lawyers who think of themselves as very impressive people who get paid by the hour, I think it's really an obstacle to investing in the right projects for long-term client value. Incredible. I, lo I love this idea of, of the, the bot roaming around internally, just kind of giving, sharing tips and, um, and, and throwing out ideas that others have been exploring. I think that's phenomenal. So interesting. So can, can we just talk for a second about, you know, being a co-founder, um, being a founder, obviously um, you haven't been in it alone you've had Steve alongside you um, and you've had a clear strategy and I, and obviously that that makes a huge difference being able to deliver on what you already know you want to do um, and um, and having sort of the, the talent and resources to, to deliver on that. But how um, I'm really interested as to how you have um, developed and built this incredible firm which um, you know, even on, even on my much smaller scale, can be relentless and overwhelming and um, can, you know, take all of your energy and passion, etc. cetera, um, because you just, you, you know, you see it as something that's separate from yourself and it can really be the best that, that you know, in terms of your vision. How have you managed to do that, deliver what you'd, and sort of, sort of clearly remained sane and balanced and you know how how have you achieved that and how do you maintain boundaries well you don't know i'm saying because we've only talked for about 30 minutes <laughs> uh, but uh i'd say i have a, a very high tolerance for stress that things don't really stress me out that much uh, most of the time and um 
I think I uh, try to be very honest with myself about what I'm giving up. So I, I think if people are looking for the typical, you know, I'm going to balance everything speech, at least I don't believe that. Um, I had a certain amount of work that I knew was required uh, to get this done the way I wanted to get it done. And that that would require sacrificing other goals that maybe personal and other sort of things that matter to certain people. And they matter to me, but I think uh, one has to just make choices and then not uh, hem and haw about it. So uh, I would not pull any punches. It's taken me to basically devote the majority of my waking hours to this project for the last 19 years. And it's probably going to be the case for many years to come as well. And uh, not everybody has to do it to this level of commitment. But I think if one is not, it should be very clear to oneself that it is going to suffer as a result. And therefore, you're just making a choice that other things are more important than uh, success in your business project. Um, I, I don't do as much as I could. Uh, I could probably probably at like 80% of what I could do if I sacrificed everything. So that 20% I'm preserving for other things that overall uh, keep me balanced and happy. But, uh, but otherwise, uh, I've devoted most of my energies to it. And at least for what we're trying to do here at the firm in terms of the scale and the international expansion and the unusual nature of what we're trying to do, I think it's like a escape velocity uh, for a rocket. I, I think if I had done not 80, but 60, uh, I don't think it would have worked. At least I would not have been able to contribute to it. I love I loved the rocket um, uh, analogy. Um, for someone sort of looking outside who is, um, for someone looking outside who's not, who's not a founder, but, and just and doesn't kind of get it, what would you say to them as to what it is that, that drives you to do this and makes you want to, to, to do it and devote so much of your time and energy and passion to do it? What is it you're getting from it? Um, so for me, uh, I think uh, I really value the international uh, travel and work that I get to do. Mm. Um, I think really being able to do what I want and then designing a firm that ends up doing what I want has been immensely valuable because probably the leading cause of professional stress is being made to do stuff you don't want to do, whether it's clients that you don't want to deal with or cases that bore you or whatever. So that has been um, what's been driving me is that this is the firm does what I love to do, the nature of the work, the uh, going to different countries and, and working with people from different cultures and nations. That's really what drives me. And I, I still really enjoy it every day. And I, I, so I totally get that. You have to be, it is so phenomenally overwhelming, potentially, unless you've got very good boundaries. And I know some founders do. You really just have to love it. You have to love what you do and you have to want to put your energy into it. I, d I do think it's um, uh, our mutual friend, uh, Laura Devine, you know, we talked about, you know, at one point might be able to scale back, maybe go part time as a founder or, you know, is that possible? I think her partner had said to her, look, I'd love it if you just did five days a week. You know, yeah. if you could scale back from six to five, that would be a great start. And I know some people wouldn't understand that, but th there is, I think there's, there can, it can be quite addictive. Um, you know, and the adrenaline buzz that you get yeah. off it. I think also it's important to know that there will be lows, um, but that actually there's very little you can't get past. I think links to what I was saying earlier about goal confusion. Now, if somebody thinks that it's very important to them to be able to scale back 
enjoy their personal life more when they want to, et cetera. They should just start and grow a personal practice as opposed to trying to start a firm slash business or worse, getting yourself confused and growing your firm in size. But in effect, what you are doing is lobbying on other people's practices and then taking responsibility for managing the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's a little bit of a difference between like just being at home by yourself and doing what you enjoy, which is like having your own personal practice. And if you don't feel like doing it anymore, you can just flop over and go to sleep versus inviting everybody over at your house or trying to turn your house into a restaurant and having customers come. Okay. Because once you start that down that road, once all the people come and you bought all the food, everything, you can't just decide to scale back without consequences. And so <laughs> yeah. I think it's the confusion between the two that caused some people to start a firm, grow it, and they get themselves all stressed out. I, you know, it's too much. I want to scale back. When in fact, they would have been happier if they just knew they're just having a personal practice and it's not going not gonna to get beyond a certain size and they might sacrifice some of the professional success for personal happiness. Then they would be aligned with their goals. But I find a lot of people think they're doing one thing when they're really doing another or they flop back and forth without even realizing it. So I think having a very clear vision, not just for the business itself, and the long-term strategy, but also kind of what you want from it and what you feel you can give, given your other commitments and, and whatever stage people are in their lives, they'll have different commitments of different things. Absolutely. Let me ask you this question, right? When do you know you're done? Um, I would, uh, I think um, when I feel like I could just not return any phone calls or do anything, uh, meaning just not participate in the business and the business would be just as successful. So, and that's what I've been trying to drive everything towards, making myself irrelevant. The, the problem with founders is, uh, you know, I think usually something about them gives, injects the business with some success early in the cycle of the, the business's development. But eventually you end up in a position that you probably would not have hired yourself for. Uh, like I have no management experience. So I'm not sure I am the best person to be co-leading an organization that has you know, in excess of 500, 550 people in it. And eventually, you know, a lot of founders, it's, a, it's about their own aggrandizement and enjoyment. They end up being the leader of a firm that they really are not best equipped in terms of skill set or knowledge base to do. So for me, it's been the opposite goal, which is how do I make myself irrelevant, superfluous to the business? It's taking a long time. It's been 19 years. I'm still not there, but it, little by little, the place is getting more and more independent. I think the key is to really try to fill the place with people who are just as or more talented than the founders. And that's really what we've been striving to do. Yeah. Well, this has been, this has been wonderful, Michael. I've really enjoyed this. Um, and I think you've given us some amazing insights and a completely different perspective on what it is to, to found a law firm and a different model and a different strategy, but with a, an incredibly clear thread of vision throughout um, which I really appreciate so thank you so much hopefully if you've been listening you've enjoyed it too uh, you will be able to find uh, uh, Michael's contact details and his firm's details at the end of this recording um, and if you have enjoyed it then please do like and share we'd very much appreciate it um, and uh, for today uh, thank you again Michael and hopefully see you in, in real life sometime soon yeah Take Thank care. you very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank Thanks, you. Sarah.